Well, let me invite you now to open your Bibles uh, with me to Acts chapter 7. And we'll be looking at uh, the stoning of Stephen in our passage uh, this morning. Acts chapter 7. I'm actually going to start reading in verse 51 to remind you again the words of this uh, godly man. I don't know how old Stephen was. I get the impression he's a younger man, but he is... um, given this uh, quite profound historical sermon to defend himself against the charges that these false accusers have raised against him. And I suspect that in the midst of that, he senses the opposition of the Sanhedrin that he is now speaking to, and he sees it in their faces. And so in verse 51, he kind of breaks off what I would imagine would have been a more direct application to Christ and confronts them on their sin directly. So I'll begin reading in Acts chapter 7, starting in verse 51. And since we're reading the Word of God, please give careful attention to the reading of God's Holy Word. Stephen says, "...you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears..." and always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at Him. And being full of the Holy Spirit, He gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at Him with one impulse. And when they had driven Him out of the city, they began stoning Him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, Stephen had just turned the tables on his accusers. It was not Stephen who had blasphemed God. They had. It was not Stephen who broke the law of God. They had. And Stephen now turns the tables on them and now confronts them with their own sin. And though they have put him on trial before men, now he puts them on trial before Almighty God. We see that in response to his boldness in confronting them with sin, because you understand in preaching the gospel, This is a serious business because you must confront men with their sin. If men do not see their sin, they do not see their need for Jesus Christ. 
And Stephen boldly confronted them being stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart, just like a Gentile is, and, and ears and always resisting the Holy Spirit. And that they are doing just as their fathers did who persecuted the prophets of God. And not only that, they have betrayed and murdered the righteous one, their own Messiah. And though they received the law ordained from angels, they did not keep it. They are the lawbreakers. They are the covenant breakers. And in response to that, the Sanhedrin before whom Stephen is preaching begins to respond in verse 54. It says, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. These two expressions just sum up how irate and full of hatred and anger they were towards this godly man. To be cut to the quick literally means to have their hearts sawn in two. Here it's used figuratively to express the, such an anger that is built up to the very point of rage that they were filled with wrath towards Stephen to the very core of their being. They are cut to the quick. Their hearts are being sawn through with conviction and pain and they hate it. And in addition to being cut to the quick, they now begin to gnash their teeth at Him. This expression is found five times in the Old Testament. All of intense anger. It's used seven times in the New Testament. In the Gospels, always by Jesus Christ, who is describing the torment of hell as weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the gnashing of teeth there is not to express the, the sorrow and pain that they are experiencing in, in hell, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth and trying to endure the pain, it expresses an intense anger towards God. In hell, those who have refused Christ, who have hated Christ in this life, will hate Christ in eternity. And they will gnash their teeth in anger and revolt against the holy judge that has justly punished them for their sin in hell. So the gnashing of teeth expresses the idea of a snarling anger of a wild animal. To express how infuriated they are with Stephen. It expresses an anger so intense that one is just grinding their teeth, just wanting to attack and annihilate your enemy. And of course, all of these responses mentioned here in verse 54 are due to the pride of their heart. The steaming and seething hatred towards Stephen is because their hearts are so full of arrogant religious pride like a dormant volcano, like Mount St. Helens, which looked so peaceful and quiet on the outside, yet seething with this cauldron of, of lava building up underneath the dome until it finally becomes so intense it explodes. So their anger is now exploding upon Stephen. Religious pride is certainly one of the worst kinds of pride there is. Religious pride is bolstered by the deluded confidence that I'm always right. That God is on my side and only on my side. 
that my doctrine is right in every single jot and tittle. And if you differ with me, then I can't have fellowship with you. You're a heretic. Religious pride breeds a holier-than-thou attitude. It bristles in anger when anyone points out to them their fault or their sin or their misunderstanding of Scripture. So that their, their pride is so intoxicated their soul that it now just erupts with anger and wrath towards Stephen who exposed their hypocrisy and their sin. Well, as they make that response, in verse 55, we see that Stephen is blessed with this incredible vision. It says, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Notice he's described as being full of the Holy Spirit. You know, I don't know of anybody in the Bible that is described as being full of the Spirit more than Stephen. This is at least the third time that he's being described as a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. And in contrast to their rage, Stephen is full of the Spirit of God and sees the glory of Almighty God. Remember back before he started his sermon, when they dragged Stephen in front of the Sanhedrin all the way back in chapter 6, verse 15, they fixed their gaze on Stephen. And all who were sitting in the council, the Sanhedrin, saw his face like the face of an angel. So back then he had the face of an angel. And now he's given the eyes of an angel because he's going to see the glory of God in heaven. We see in verse 55 that he's gazing intently into heaven and, and heaven is, is, is opened up to him. He says that in verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened up. And what we have here is the Lord is giving Stephen a, a rare glimpse of the glory of heaven from earth. So that the Spirit of God miraculously is, is opening up heaven so that Stephen is being able to gaze upon God in heaven. So apparently the Spirit of God in some way miraculously brought the glory of heaven down so Stephen could actually see it. Whether it's a vision or whether he's actually seeing it, I don't know how to to understand that, but he's seeing the glory of God and uh, beholding Christ. Look what he goes on to say in verse 56 as he's recounting what he's seeing with his eyes. He's saying, behold, and, and, and understand, he's, he's still in front of the Sanhedrin. And he's saying, behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. What Stephen is saying here is that on several accounts that he sees Christ standing at the Father's right hand. Notice how he describes Jesus as the Son of Man. Now where does that come from? Well, you remember this was our Lord's preferred description of Himself. Whenever He referred to Himself, He called Himself the Son of Man. And that came from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. It was a prophecy of the coming Messiah who would be one like a son of man. 
and he would come up to ascend up into heaven on the clouds of heaven. He would ascend up to the Ancient of Days and there he would be given a kingdom, a dominion, glory and power so that all the people, nations and men from every language might serve him. And his dominion would be an everlasting dominion which would never pass away. And that was fulfilled, began its fulfillment at the ascension of Jesus Christ. So what Stephen is saying is I see Jesus as the Son of Man. And obviously, all of the Jews would have been familiar with that prophecy. And obviously, that would have not set well with them. This is similar things to what Jesus said during His own trial. But notice what He goes on to say in verse 56. I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the, at the right hand of God. Now that's another fascinating uh, description of where Jesus is. He's the Son of Man, so He's the fulfillment of the Daniel 7 prophecy. But being at the right hand of God, that comes from Psalm 110. Another great messianic psalm. Which says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now again, the Sanhedrin had heard that before. Because when Jesus was on trial before them and the high priest said to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of, the Son of God. And Jesus responded by quoting Psalm 110. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He combined Psalm 110 with the Daniel 7 passage. And obviously they accused him of blasphemy and it led to his death. Describing Jesus, seeing Jesus in a vision as a Son of Man at the right hand of God is a very important description of the Lord Jesus. Because the right hand of God is the place of deity. Nobody sits at the Father's right hand who is not God Himself. No creature has the right to sit there. So Stephen sees Jesus, the Son of Man, at the Father's right hand. Because the right hand of God is the place of divine power and honor and sovereignty and authority over all things in the universe. To be at God's right hand is to be the one who governs all things. Just like Joseph in the book of Genesis, when Pharaoh set Joseph over all the land of Egypt and gave him his own signet ring and clothed him in fine linen and put a gold necklace around his neck and had him ride in his second chariot while the people proclaimed before him, bow the knee, bow the knee. So Joseph was elevated and had rule over all of Egypt. And in a similar way, though an infinitely greater way, Jesus is now exalted to the Father's right hand and has sovereign authority over all the universe. Every atom, every galaxy, everything He sovereignly rules over. So when Stephen identified Jesus as the Son of Man at the right hand of God, that was an acknowledgement that He was God. That he was deity. And obviously the Sanhedrin would have seen that as complete blasphemy. What's interesting about the Lord giving Stephen this incredible vision. 
is what a blessed vision that would be. Because Stephen is now about to be condemned and stoned to death for his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus Christ, the very one who loves him, who died for him, who rose again for him, is now at God's right hand, ruling as a monarch and sovereign over all the universe. And I think it would be especially comforting to Stephen that in the hour of his death, he sees a vision of the victory of Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father. But one of the most unique things about this description in verse 56 is he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, not sitting, as Psalm 110 says. Sit at my right hand until I make all your enemies a footstool for your feet. But here Stephen sees Jesus standing. And the significance, of course, of Jesus normally sitting at God's right hand is spelled out in the book of Hebrews, which says it's significant for the high priest, once he has, the high priest being the Lord Jesus, who has offered his own blood and his own life, a sacrifice for sins once for all time, never to be repeated again, his work is done. So it's appropriate for him to sit. Unlike the priests of Israel, who always had to be standing and working and offering more animal sacrifices and more sacrifices and more sacrifices because that blood could never take away sin. Their work was never done. But it pointed forward to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And when He shed His blood, His blood was so precious, His blood was so powerful that it was able to atone for all the sins of God's people never to be repeated again. So He was able to sit down because His work was done. Salvation had been accomplished by His death and resurrection. But here Jesus is standing. He has the right to sit. But here He's standing. And commentators have wrestled with the significance of that. Some say that Jesus had been sitting, but He stands up at that moment when Stephen sees a vision of the Lord Jesus at the Father's right hand because He's standing up as Stephen's heavenly advocate. Remember Matthew chapter 10, verse 32. Jesus said, Everyone who confesses Me before men, I will confess him before My Father who is in heaven. And as Stephen had been confessing Christ before men, now Christ now stands to confess Stephen before His Father. Some think that is the significance of the Lord Jesus standing at this moment. And even though Stephen was condemned by an earthly court, Stephen now has the vision and the gaze of His own approval and acceptance by the judge of all the universe, Jesus Christ, who now stands to welcome Him into heaven. So though He's being condemned by an earthly court, He sees the high King of heaven, the true judge of all men, the living and the dead, the judge of heaven and earth, standing up, advocating Him before the Father. What an incredible vision that must have been. F.F. Bruce sees it a little bit differently. He says that Jesus just merely stands to welcome the first martyr of the new covenant church into his embrace. That Jesus stands to welcome Stephen, the very first believer 
who loses his life for the sake of the gospel. Either way, it was a phenomenal vision that Stephen sees. Well, in verse 57, having heard Stephen cry out, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In verse 57, they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. So now hearing Stephen's words, those words were like fingernails on a chalkboard. Those words were were so irritating. Those words they so violently, violently disagreed with that they could not bear to even hear them. So they started screaming themselves to drown out his voice, putting their hands over their ears so they wouldn't hear what they thought was blasphemy. And then they rush on him with one impulse. The only thing I can think of uh, recently that, that makes me put my hand over my ears because it's such an irritating sound is on Saturday around noontime uh, because I live right across from a park and there's a great big siren deal and it goes around in a circle and it is such a loud piercing sound. I literally put my hands on... If I'm outside, I put my hands over my ears and I rush inside. I cannot stand that noise. Well, in a much greater, more intense way, the very voice of Stephen attesting to the glory of Jesus Christ, exalted to the Father's right hand as a messianic king, the judge over all things, given a kingdom, given dominion over all things, is such an irritation to their soul, they got to scream and cover up their ears and rush on him to silence him. They cannot stand to hear it. They rush on him with one impulse, it says in verse 57. This is, this is like a, a mob lynching. And they're all in agreement. They're in one impulse. They all are just motivated by the same hatred. And they're quick to hurry up the execution of Stephen, so they rush at him. You know, it's interesting... Uh, Luke has used this word before. Can you think of any time when something rushed down a steep bank? It was all those swine that Jesus cast the demons out of that demon-possessed man and He sent them into the swine. And the, the demonic control over the the little piggy brain of those swine just made them go berserk and crazy. So they rushed down the steep bank and they all drowned in the Sea of Galilee. And I would not be surprised if there's a hint here of a similar demonic uh, spirit that has controlled the Sanhedrin because now they rush upon Stephen with the same kind of insane mentality of their brains are just so full of hate that they've got to kill him. So verse 58, when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We'll deal with Saul's role in this, uh, Lord willing, next time. But they drive him out of the city. And they began stoning him. And uh, driving him out of the city is something that they should do. That 
certainly was uh, at least legal in, in the, the legal system uh, found in, in, the Mos- in uh, Moses' uh, law. And they began stoning him because the penalty for blasphemy was stoning in Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. However, as of A.D. 6, the year A.D. 6, when Rome took authority over Judea, they began to rule directly over Judea through a Roman prefect, and they took away the right of capital punishment from the Jews. Uh, John mentions that in John 18, verse 3. So they really did not have the right to execute Stephen. But they're so outraged and they're so resisting and rebelling against the Holy Spirit that they threw the Roman law out of the window. And not only that, they threw their own legal laws out of the window, their own laws of jurisprudence. Because the law said, the way they practiced it in the first century, was that when someone was brought up on charges of capital punishment, you had to have arguments for his defense presented in the trial. There were none of that. You also had to have some Sanhedrin, some of the judges had to argue for acquittal on the side of the defendant. There's none of that. You also had to have individual voting. They, they threw that out the window. There was none of that. And then on a capital charge, they were supposed to go home that night and meet in pairs and spend the whole night discussing the case and reconvene the next morning to confirm the final verdict and then the, the, uh, the punishment if he's found guilty. There was none of that. In other words, the Supreme Court of Israel had become a kangaroo court. This is a mob lynching. There wasn't any legal standing going on here at all. They had thrown all that out the window. So that, and same way with the trial of Christ. The few things they did right is they took him out of the city and the witnesses uh, started the process of the stoning. We see in verse 58, the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The witnesses that brought the charges against the accused were the ones who were supposed to start the actual stoning process. In other words, you need to be absolutely convinced in your own mind, being a witness against him, that he was guilty, so much so that you would actually pick up a rock and start the stoning. Uh, Again, that's one of the few rules that they seem to have followed here. Now, these witnesses, of course, were false witnesses. They were described that way back in chapter 6, verse 13. So as Jesus was accused by false witnesses, so Stephen is accused by false witness. And again, they're going to lay their robes aside at the feet of a young man named Saul, and then they began to, to stone Stephen. Uh, death by stoning was not a pretty spectacle to see. Uh, the executions were public. They were not done in private. It was also a community form of capital punishment. Once the witnesses began throwing these rocks, others would take up rocks, not small little rocks, large rocks, and continue the process until the accused was put to death. It was a very slow, a very brutal, literally a bone-crushing, bloody death. 
The rocks would be thrown from various directions. There's no way you could protect yourself. They would usually begin by trying to throw someone off a cliff or down an embankment to start maybe break a leg or something like that to prevent their ability to to shield and protect themselves. And then the rocks would start coming from different angles. Large rocks. Some would hit the torso. Some would hit the head, the face, back of the head the chest, the legs, until eventually the lifeblood drained out of the victim and they died. In verses 59 and 60, we see as Stephen is being stoned, he makes two remarkable Christ-like Uh, expressions, statements. In verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen and he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now again, that's similar to what Jesus said on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So Stephen's death is following a very close pattern to the way Jesus himself died And also the heart that Jesus had is being reflected through Stephen. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What does he mean by these words? I think Stephen is communicating very clearly he's ready to die for Christ. He knows the end has come. He has fought the good fight. He has finished his course. He has kept the faith. He has presented His body a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God. His eyes are now miraculously fixed upon Jesus in heaven. And He's ready to go and be with His Lord. Paul said, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Why is that? Why is die to die is gain? Because you see, to live for Christ, to, when Paul said, for me to live is Christ, you're living for Christ. To live is Christ, you're living for Christ. But death is gain because then you're living with Christ. And that's what Stephen is about to experience. He's ready. He has borne the good testimony before a crowd that hates him He has borne witness to the vision of Jesus Christ that he's seeing. Christ, the Son of God. Christ, the Son of Man. Christ exalted to the Father's right hand. Christ now enthroned in glory. And he has borne witness to all of that. And now he's ready to receive the wrath, the hatred, the anger of the world and to die and to be with Christ. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I'm coming, Lord. Just have a few more breaths left and I'll be with you, Lord. Receive my spirit. And he offers up himself completely and totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 60, he's falling to his knees now. The gashing, the... the, The impact of the stones have now wearied and broken his body and he's falling to his knees. And he cries out with a loud voice, as did Jesus who 
right before he died, he, he shouted out with a loud voice to Telestai, it is finished. Only here he's crying out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. The second great expression of faith of Stephen right before he dies is a prayer of forgiveness for his enemies. Jesus, forgive them. Reminds us again of Jesus on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The very dying heart of Jesus is full in Stephen's heart. No doubt Luke who recorded these words in his gospel was quite impressed when he had heard that Stephen uttered these very Christ-like expressions himself. And by praying to Jesus, as, as Jesus on the cross prayed to the Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Father, do not hold these sins against them. Stephen, on the other hand, prays to Jesus, indicating that in Stephen's mind, Jesus was worthy to be prayed to. He was worthy to be worshipped just as the Father because they were one. And so he could pray to Jesus because Jesus was God the Son. I think in these being his very last words, as profound as they are, Luke writes for our edification and for our example. Uh, There is not a sin committed against you by someone else that you cannot find the grace to forgive. I think part of what we see with Stephen is that here's a man who had a heart so full of God's grace that he could forgive those people that were killing him. Now understand, Stephen was falsely accused. Stephen was falsely condemned. And Stephen is now being falsely executed. There are people that will do things wrong against you. There will be people that will falsely accuse you. There will be people who will falsely condemn you in their eyes. But still, there is the grace that we have in Christ that as we have been forgiven, so we need to extend forgiveness to other people as Stephen did here. Sometimes in teaching this, people have asked me, well, or they've commented to me, uh, well, you only need to forgive those people who ask for forgiveness. So that if someone sins against you, but they never come to you and ask for forgiveness, then you're not obligated to forgive them. Really? Is that what Jesus did on the cross? Did the Roman soldiers, did all the people standing around mocking Him ask Jesus to forgive them when He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? Did the Sanhedrin come to Stephen and say, as we're killing you and stoning you and breaking your head and your body in pieces, please forgive us. Lord Jesus, don't hold this sin against them. See, that's what a gracious heart does. It knows how to forgive because a gracious heart knows how much we have been forgiven. I only say this because if there's anyone here this morning that has not 
forgiven someone who has sinned against you, you need to find the grace to forgive them. Because you are never, I've said this before, but you are never more like Jesus Christ than when you forgive those who sin against you. And we all get mistreated in this life at times. We all hear people say things about us. People do things against us. But that doesn't, you know, we've been forgiven of far worse crimes in the eyes of God. And we can find the grace, as Stephen found the grace, to forgive those. Because if you do not forgive, you carry around that sense of anger and bitterness the rest of your life. It's like those old whaling harpoons. uh, Men that would go out in in ships and they would hunt the whales and a whale would come up and they would take their their big harpoons uh, tied with a rope and they would ram that harpoon as deep as they can into the hide of that whale. And as long as that harpoon is stuck in their side, that whale will drag that boat full of men until they die. They will never be free of the offense. They'll never be free of the rope or the chain that binds them back to the offenders. But when by the grace of God you can forgive other people, when by the grace of God you can pull out that harpoon and ask for God to forgive them, suddenly you can be healed and suddenly you're free which you would never be free of if you continue to harbor the resentment and anger towards their offense or their sin against you. God's people are a forgiving people because our God is a forgiving God. And this is what we need to live out on a day-to-day basis in our relationship with other sinners around us. Well, at the end of verse 60, having said this, he fell asleep. Interesting word. It's a euphemism for death. This sleep is a figure of speech that describes only the body and death, not the soul. There's no soul sleep here. This is a body sleep. This is a figure of speech that in death, it is from God's perspective, basically just, it's like you're falling asleep. The body goes into hibernation and lies silent and dormant until the day of resurrection when we will awaken in newness of life so that death for the believer is viewed upon with this precious figure of speech if they've just fallen asleep in Jesus. Yeah, they're dead, but their body will one day awaken in glorious life. The day of resurrection is coming. When every sleeping body of the saints will be resurrected and glorified and brought up into the immediate presence of Christ. So that the, the, the speaking of His death as a sleep speaks to the blessed hope that we have when this mortal will put on immortality and death will be swallowed up in victory. Well, having read this, I'm... I, I'm often struck with why, why did Stephen have to die? Why did he have to suffer? Why do so many young people or young godly people, why are they taken from us when they seem like they have so much to look forward to in life? I've often wondered about Jim Elliott, David Brainerd, Robert Murray McShane, choice godly young men who died at the age of 28 and 29. 
men who are gifted and men who could serve the church and be such a blessing for decades. And why did God take them so, so young? Why did Stephen, a man full of the Spirit, a man gifted in preaching, a, a man gifted in serving, why would God take him home? Well, obviously, we must speak with great humility for who knows the mind of God but God alone. And the Scriptures tell us that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever. So the Scriptures gives us some aspects of an answer around the outer edges of that without knowing, obviously, in each individual case, the full purpose of God. Only God knows that. But the Scriptures do tell us that our days are numbered by God. We can find a measure of comfort in that. That the Beloved didn't die out of a great, in any way, a sense of, of a mistake or a sense of a mishap or, or by accident. No, our days have been numbered. Job 14 verse 5 says, since God has determined our days, He has set the limits so that we cannot pass those limits. Psalm 139 says that in the book of God, our days which were ordained for us have all been written when as yet there is not one of them. Even our life breath is in the hands of God. So that God for His own infinite wisdom and purpose which we cannot fathom has determined to number our days. And sometimes that means someone will die before they reach old age. But secondly, there is a sense in which Christ is glorified when He ordains that some of His choicest servants die a death of martyrdom similar to His own. I don't fully understand this, but there is a sense in which God has ordained men like Stephen to go through and die at a relatively young age. Remember, our Lord was only 30 or 33 when He died. Relatively young. But they enter into the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. So by, by God's choice and by God's decree, some of His children will imitate the Lord in dying at the hand of un, the ungodly. Dying as a martyr. And in that sense, entering into a closer identity and fellowship with Jesus Christ in His sufferings and in His death. But we can also say that even though unbelievers have triumphed, the Sanhedrin have, have triumphed over Stephen, that it seems like that their cause is advancing. Their cause has won because they have killed Stephen. And it seems like Satan is winning the war here. But he's not. When unbelievers kill Christians, the unbeliever does not win. In his mind, he wins. In the, in the sense of the externals, he may seem to win, but he doesn't win. Who is one? The one who died in faith. They've won the victory. They have triumphed. Not the ones who put him to death. So one who died faithful to Christ. They have the victory. Remember Paul in Romans 8 says for for your sake, we are being put to death all day long and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. It's the martyr who conquers, not the killer. It's the one who dies. So that in Revelation 12, verse 11, they can say that the saints who died at the hand of Satan, that they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. They triumphed. They overcame. So that when we do not deny Christ in the hour of persecution and even in the hour of death, we become the overcomers. Revelation 2.10 tells the church, Christ says to them, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you'll have tribulation for ten days. But be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. We get the crown. We get the martyr's crown. Even though they kill us, we win. We are triumphant. We are overcomers through Him who loved us. So death is not a defeat for a believer. It's actually a great victory because of the certainty of our soul immediately going into the presence of Christ and the future day of resurrection so that you're never a loser when you suffer for the name of Jesus. And then quickly, Psalm 116, verse 15, God says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. So that when we wrestle with the death of our loved ones or godly saints within the church, it's because in some way God sees their death as precious in His sight. And it's precious, no doubt, for many reasons. But one is that he, he brings that child that Christ suffered for and bled for, He brings that child now home into His presence, face to face with His Savior or her Savior. And that is precious. Because the end game is ultimately not us living for Christ forever on this earth. The end game is that we are living with Christ in heaven forever and ever. That's why Christ came. And that's why it's precious in the sight of God. Because we are taken home. And that's why now we're only strangers and aliens in this world. This is not our home. Our home is with Him. And it's a precious day when God calls us home. That's our homecoming to be with Him. And then finally, in wrestling with why Stephen had to die, is because God's going to bring good out of this evil. It's a tragedy any way you look at it, but God will bring good out of it. And we'll dwell on this more next time. But this is going to be the means of God and God's providence for advancing the Great Commission. And it's a powerful tool in God's hand in bringing that about. We'll see that hopefully next time. Well, can God bring good out of evil? Can God bring good out of your evil? He can, because He promised He would. And the great proof of it is that God has brought good out of the evil of the death of Jesus Christ. As I've said on several occasions, the greatest evil that has ever occurred in human history is when they crucified the Son of Glory. And out of that greatest act of human evil came the greatest good of of all human history, and that is the salvation that Jesus accomplished. 
Can God bring good out of evil? He can. By faith, we must embrace that. By faith, we can because we have proof that through Christ's death came our life and our salvation. So turn your thoughts to Christ and love Him and praise Him and thank Him for the salvation that He has accomplished.